Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, John. Hi, Eileen. Okay. So, um, let me start by asking you a question. Mm -hmm. uh, would you begin this by explaining how the project on this, this project began on the Oxford Handbook of the History of Education? Okay. So yes, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a while back, you know, 2013 or so, and uh, I was uh, just uh, at home on my computer minding my own business, and I got an email out of the blue from a young woman at Oxford University Press asking me if I would be interested in editing the Oxford Handbook of the History of Education. Uh, and that was, uh, like I said, very surprising. And uh, she said that I had been recommended by one or more people. So, uh, of course, it was intriguing, uh, intriguing idea. And they, part of the invitation was to develop a proposal. Uh, she said that uh, she offered to send me uh, other uh, handbooks, history handbooks, and she sent me the handbook on oral history, Oxford Handbook on Oral History. And I looked through that uh, before uh, committing. And uh, the other thing she said, well, you can have a co-editor and uh, and she gave me some guidelines uh, in terms of uh, how to select contributors and some in terms of the size and scope of the volume. It was uh, at, at the at the very outset. She said, "Yeah, just uh, focusing on literature and studies and and research that's in, published in English." So that kind of gave it some narrowed it down. But apart from that, it was it was really supposed to be global in orientation. So I thought about it for a long time, and I really, in talking with my spouse about it, and uh, in terms of time commitments and so on, uh, I really believed that I needed to have somebody else to help me out. So that's what led me to reach out to Eileen, uh, who I've known for a long time and respected a great deal. Um, and uh, I thought that uh, my thinking was that, that she's, a highly capable person, if you don't mind my saying so, and uh, and uh, well-respected historian. But she also has expertise that, that complemented mine. We don't overlap a whole lot, um, so uh, so that was an, another very positive uh, side to it. And that turned out, I think, to be very fruitful, make for a very fruitful uh, collaboration between the two of us. So. So uh, then, the, Eileen and I worked uh, very hard on putting together a proposal. Uh, for the handbook to send to Oxford University Press. Um, and uh, I can say some more about that if you'd like. Okay, that's good. Yeah, and I just want to say I was very surprised to get a call from John and asking me to participate. 
And I thought, wow, I don't know. Wow. But but I said, why not? Because John, as he said, does things that his research and my research complement each other. So so I thought this was a very interesting project worth getting into. So John, would you talk about the process of outlining the volume? Yeah, so uh, the two of us, we had to, and I had some ideas to start with and, and Eileen did too. So we, we uh, uh, went back and forth and we made an outline of all the, of how to approach this. I mean, it's very daunting, right? The, the idea of history of education uh, around the world and throughout time. So, uh, and what we sort of, I think, I think can give her thoughts on this too, but, uh, you know, we start off by the observation that so much of the history of education has been written from a national perspective. So we really felt as though we had to uh, begin with that idea, right? That at least in modern education systems, the nation state is a very important concept. But of course, there's a lot of history that precedes the rise of nation states. So we had to incorporate that also. Uh, and then we had institutional dimensions. Higher education was obviously uh, is somewhat separate area within the history of education. So we had to accommodate that. And then there was a whole range of other topics to address. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And we uh, put together a proposal that um, uh, had an outline, I think of 35 chapters to start with. And uh, we sent that to Oxford along with some description of how we would, what we would ask authors to, uh, we didn't really, think of the authors at this stage. We had obviously ideas, but we didn't commit. We just looked at topics at this point, I believe. And uh, um, and we also some guidelines or some, and Oxford obviously had some uh, requirements or expectations about how the chapters would be organized and, and uh, uniformity of presentation and, and coverage and style and uh, bibliographic uh, citation and reading recommendations, those kinds of things. Uh, so we put that, those, uh, covered those issues or topics in the proposal. But I think the main thing was the, was the list of chapters. And, uh, and they sent it out to review. So we had a couple of reviewers that uh, went over it and gave us feedback and somewhat critical, but also uh, supportive. Uh, and so we tweaked and changed things a little bit, and uh, then it was uh, it was accepted, and, and and we were off to the races in terms of trying to identify authors for these various chapters that we had conceived of, and uh, and and that was an interesting uh, yeah itself. Okay, I have nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, so, so do you want to say something about the process of, of identifying authors? Yeah. Um, well, John and I divided the chapter topics according to our own knowledge of the scholarly literature and our knowledge of scholars working in the various fields. And then other scholars also recommended people to us. And when we didn't know about a person's specific expertise, 
we were able to check them out, check out the publication, see if their research was in line with what we were looking for. And, you know, slowly we were able to identify and recruit enough authors who said yes. So that was very re rewarding. Anything to add, John? Yeah, you know, in some cases, at least for me, I mean, we divided the list up, right? So more or less right. 50. And then we, you know, each took the lead in, a, in, in reaching out to authors that we had identified. And in some cases, it took some persuasion. Yeah. Least, uh, you know, in terms of uh, um, introducing the idea, and then if it wasn't immediately uh, agreed upon, which was the case in many instances, uh, then uh, it took a series of phone calls and discussion and uh, and uh, in some cases, uh, you know, somebody else being recommended that we had then had to follow up on. Uh, yeah. So it, it took a while for us to line up the authors. Right. A lot of authors, scholars, as you know, have their own projects. So they're deep into something. So when you ask them for a chapter, it's like, oh, another thing to do, but I'm deep into this other thing. So, yeah, it did take some persuading. I think the other thing for the authors and, and anybody who looks at our at the handbook, I think will see this, uh, particularly if you, you know, you worked in the field uh, or in, in history of childhood also, because so much of our research is sort of focused on particular places. Or yeah. Uh, and in many of these uh, chapters, uh, they're being called upon to look beyond national borders, right? So, for instance, we have, you know, we have a whole section of the book on national systems of education, but it's organized uh, by continents. So, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Nancy Beattie, who's a, a, a wonderful uh, historian of American education, uh, we asked her to write a chapter on North America. Well, that meant that she had to then uh, really uh, learn a lot about Canadian education and Mexican education. She wrote a terrific chapter, but she later uh, told us that it really uh, stretched her a great deal in terms of her thinking and, and writing. Uh, and, and other authors had similar experiences. You know, some of the other chapters, uh, David Gamson's work on uh, rural, the rural to urban transition, Rather than ask somebody to write a chapter on rural education, we really we challenged David to think about rural to urban transition. And that took him a long time, but, and he really uh, just uh, tackled the, the uh, project enthusiastically and uh, a terrific chapter, but was very challenging, I think, for him. Yeah, right. Uh, others so, also, yeah. Yeah, so that leads very well into the next thing we wanted to talk about was the challenges that the scholars face. Mm -hmm. And one was time, of course. And another one was our specific uh, requests, because we gave the authors uh, specific asks about on what we wanted them to address in their, in their chapters. Although they could create the chapters however they <clears throat> wanted to, 
we, we wanted them to do certain things. For example, we wanted them to not just describe the scholarship, but critique it. Mm -hmm. And we wanted them to address controversies mm -hmm. in the field where there were, if there were any. And then, as John had said earlier, not talking about one country or one nation, but going beyond that, looking at it regionally and globally, if possible, and comparing and contrasting places with themes, approaches, and so forth. In other words, that was, I think, a really major challenge for the authors to, to go beyond their national boundaries, but to go regional and global. And then, to, in addition to make suggestions for further research. So we were asking a lot out of the uh, contributors and I would say another challenge that many of them had problems with was we limited because of the Oxford guidelines. We told them we had to tell them 6,000 to 8,000 words. And that would be maybe about 12 to 14 printed pages or so. And as you know, no, normally people write longer essays that could be double the length of that. So a number of the contributors uh, sent very long essays, so we had to ask them to cut it down drastically. And another uh, a challenge for them, I thought was, or they felt was, you know, historians like to make little commentaries or add some relevant information in their endnotes or footnotes. But Oxford told us they, they didn't want any of that. It should be just straight citation. So that was very hard for contributors because there, were, there wasn't enough room in the narrative oftentimes. So they had to end up either writing something very short in the narrative or excluding that, uh, that inf information. So that was another challenge I thought that the authors had. Absolutely, and it's the senators because uh, in many cases uh, we provided very clear, or we tried to, clear guidance on that in terms of what to cut and how to do it. Uh, so that, I mean, it was very labor intensive for us as editors, I will say. Yeah, I agree. Edited, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, so let's go to the specific, some, just some, because there are 30, what, 36 chapters, mm -hmm. and we can only talk about a few, but um, why don't we talk about um, how this handbook, Oxford Handbook on the History of Education might be of interest to readers interested in the history of children and youth. So John, would you start off and uh, talk about two chapters? Okay, yeah, so I think, you know, one very interesting chapter, just, just sort of pulling them out uh, by example, uh, 
I mean, I think all of the chapters in the handbook speak to that. And there is a chapter by um, um, Barbara Beatty, uh, chapter 27, is specifically on the history of childhood. So that would be a good starting point for anybody in the uh, history of childhood and youth who might be interested in looking at the handbook. But I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about Mark Joyal, uh, J-O-Y-A-L, chapter 5, when he writes about education in Greek and Roman antiquity. And this is sort of our, our uh, effort to cover ancient education. Now, the chapter on Chinese education or in Asian education, they have, those chapters have uh, 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 discussed a similar sort of time frame briefly, but Joyle's chapter goes into great depth about, about education in, in the Mediterranean uh, world and in, in uh, ancient times. And a lot of that chapter is focusing on youth because so much of the education at that time was informal. Um, and, uh, and a lot of it was sort of the big gender distinctions and slave versus free um, in terms of the way that ch children lived and learned in different contexts uh, and, and the various traditions and controversies that, that uh, uh, existed in those societies. Uh, at different points in time and, and uh, over the centuries uh, that, that represent the sort of ancient uh, educational experiences. So, so that would be a very interesting chapter for anybody interested in, in the history of children and youth uh, to uh, consider. Uh, another one that I think would be very interesting sort of on a different scale would be uh, uh, Christopher Spann's uh, and uh, uh, Brenda Sanya's book on the education in the African diaspora. Uh, again, there, this is a case of two scholars that have a grounding in American or African American history, but they're looking at things from a more global standpoint. Now, much of the chapter does focus on, on uh, African American experience, but, but many other places too. And of course, so much of that experience is informal education and um, uh, the experiences of children uh, under the conditions of servitude or colonialism are, are different dimensions of uh, uh, exploitation that, uh, that, that children and youth from that, that have that, that African heritage uh, experienced at different points in history. So those are, those are a couple of chapters. Uh, I think Eileen has a couple other examples. Also. Yeah. So going back to chapter five education in greek and roman antiquities in that same section or part two pre-modern roots there's a chapter seven education in pre-modern china and japan and as john uh mentioned this this period in china and japan is very interesting because um, education was really important, of course, in all places, but specifically in China and Japan, the chapter discusses not just childhood and youth, but goes back to pregnant, pregnancy, what the woman should be doing during pregnancy to ensure a good education for the child. And um, then it the chapter also talks 
a lot about children and youth and the type of education, formal and informal and non-formal, but um, it talks specifically also about infants, what uh, the parents, especially the mother, should be doing with the infant. And one of the things that's really important in both China, early China and Japan, was moral education, character education. So they really stress that. So not only educating the mind, but also educating the heart. So that would be a good comparison to what was going on in, in ancient Greek or early Greek. So another chapter to uh, mention would be chapter 22, the one on gender and the history of education. Uh, this is an area of scholarship, as everyone knows, that has grown tremendously since the 1990s. And it's the cultural shifts in people's understanding of gender issues and how they've impacted children and youth. And this is something that's a really a growing field and ripe for further investigation. So something I think very interesting for historians of young people. And, and so, Luke yeah, and Karen yeah, Graves, yeah. they did a marvelous job with that chapter. Yes, yes, yes. Do you have anything to add, a couple more chapters? Yeah, well, you know, the, uh, Heidi Morrison, who uh, people in, in childhood and youth uh, uh, history uh, would be very familiar with, she wrote a chapter on, on, on youth in Egypt, or a book, rather, that, that's been reviewed in, the, in your, uh, uh, on your website. Uh, she did a terrific chapter for us on education systems in the Middle East, and of course, she weaves the childhood uh, themes in there as well. Um, and uh, the... Uh, it's also, I think, important to, uh, to uh, mention uh, Bill Reese's chapter on progressive education and the rise of child, you know, the, the sort of romantic idea of child study and putting the child, at the, the idea of putting children at the center of education that comes up in the 19th and early 20th century. Bill does a really fine job of, of uh, representing that phase of education history and history of childhood also. Uh, so there's just a few more examples. Uh, there are many others uh, places yeah. history of childhood comes into play here. Yeah. And um, of course, as John had mentioned before, chapter 27, specifically on childhood and children, the, the history of constructing the concept of childhood, that should be very interesting to listeners. But I'd mm -hmm. like to also mention... Um, uh, another chapter, which is the history of school teachers and administrators, which would naturally be of interest to uh, readers interested in children and youth. And um, this chapter, of course, goes to formal education. So that's important. And there's another chapter that looks at non-formal and informal education, chapter 34, mm -hmm. which uh, would be very relevant to children and youth. What, what organizations or institutions 
try to complement schooling. And that could be uh, libraries, youth groups, in-service workshops, and so forth, but also informal education where it's everyday experiences, especially important for children that uh, are not formalized, but experiences that are really important for children's learning. So that's a very interesting chapter for readers interested in children and youth. Absolutely. And the very next chapter, History of Technology in Education, I think, given, especially given the revolution we've had in, in digital technology, uh, inside and outside of formal education, I think that many readers uh, from, from your field would find that very interesting, too. And Savant Terzian at University of Florida did a fine job with that. And that's a good example. Savant's a good example of somebody who was working on other things who said, okay, this is an interesting challenge, and then really poured himself into it and did a, did a really fine job with the chapter. Okay, so shall we talk about challenges we faced? Absolutely. So, yeah, we kind of touched on this before, but, uh, you know, we had some authors who uh, life intervened and they couldn't really finish their task, and so then we had to find somebody else to do it. Uh, we really, you know, in our looking at national education systems, we had, like I said, we, uh, we did it continentally. So we had North America and South America, or Latin America, we had Asia. Uh, Elizabeth Vanderven, another scholar who's looked at childhood issues in Asia, she did a, in China, did a terrific job with the Asian chapter, very challenging. And uh, uh, we had a, a chapter on Africa looking at national systems. But then we realized that we really were missing the Middle East. <laughs> so we thought initially that, and Elizabeth had a, had a part of her chapter where she did a case of, of looking at Iran. And uh, uh, the African chapter kind of looked at North Africa a little bit. But, but we really felt like we needed that Middle Eastern chapter. So that was... That was an addition, and, and our editors at the Oxford were very generous in saying, yes, okay, you can, you can add that. And like I said, Heidi Morrison came in. She joined the project. She was the last author to join it, and she uh, did her chapter in, 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 in very good time and, and did a terrific job. Didn't really require a lot, a big editorial, uh, a lot of commentary or any interventions. And so that was, that was very, very fortunate, and I think it's added it's really rounded out the volume as far as covering the, the, the so-called national systems uh, question uh, pretty nicely. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so, and some of, the, some of them took a long time. I, we won't mention names, but uh, uh, some of our authors, uh, I mean, I'd mentioned David Gamson, so David took a long, long time, but, uh, but in the end, his chapter was really marvelous and, and, and uh, unusual and, and inventive in so many ways. Yeah, and, and I think one of the major challenges for the authors, or for us, was finding the right authors, the right scholars, who could discuss the global or regional nature of the topic. Because, as John said earlier, most of us, of course, historians tend to look deeply into a specific 
area or topic. And so to then stretch our scope and go beyond that to a large region was very challenging. And it was challenging for us to find the scholars who are willing to do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that would be one of the challenges. So why don't we talk about future research possibilities that maybe we could mention just a couple before we run out of time. Yeah, I think, you know, looking back on it, uh, you know, 36 chapters and, and we're really, we're pushing the limits of what Oxford wanted. But uh, so, you know, it occurs to me is I work in a, happen to work at an institution where we have a very uh, large uh, special education department and many people working in that field. And it just struck me after we were up and running that we didn't really propose a separate chapter on disabilities in education. And now it's a field that, that education historians haven't devoted a lot of attention to. I think that his, uh, scholars looking at the history of childhood have, have actually done more. Uh, so then we, so then we uh, kind of leaned on our authors a little bit. So uh, Judith Kafka, who did the chapter on inequality, uh, that sort of starts off that, that uh, section of the book. It's right, it's right in front of the gender chapter. Uh, so Judith really stretched herself to incorporate a, a large portion of her chapter to looking at disability as a dimension of inequality. Uh, so that's an example of a sort of a challenging uh, uh, issue, along with the Middle Eastern piece that we mentioned earlier. Uh, those yeah. are yeah, and before we close, I just want to add uh, a couple of future research. Every chapter has a section at the end where the author talks about future research possibilities. I just want to mention one chapter that uh, we hadn't mentioned earlier, Chapter 8, Pre-Colonial Indigenous yeah. Education. And yeah. Adria Lawrence did that. And that's a chapter, well, what she found was there were very few histories of pre-colonial indigenous education because that's a huge challenge for scholars. And so that area is ripe for further research for people, for historians willing to look at source materials that go beyond the written text. So like what archeologists have found, um, getting into music, dance, ceremonies, uh, land issues, uh, the physical structures and so forth. So this goes, this stretches the um, creativity of historians to go beyond what we normally have been doing, the written document and even oral histories. So that's one um, uh, area for future research. John, you wanna, before we close? Yeah, I think an, another good example is the final chapter of the book, which is Marcello Caruso from University of Berlin. And he writes about international comparative education. And he actually finds a whole body of, of sources about international conferences, about exchanges between countries in terms of educational ideas and, and practices. Uh, 
that going back to the 19th century, people traveling the world and comparing and innovating uh, and then writing about it from a comparative and international perspective. And that's, again, uh, just opening up a whole new area of research, I think, uh, that for the future. Okay, well, that's all we have for now. And uh, so thank you for listening. <laughs> and uh, we hope this was helpful to you. It's the Oxford Handbook of History of Education. And uh, we hope uh, that if it's pretty well received, it seems to be arriving in libraries now. It was just published a year ago or less than a year ago. And uh, and the, we were told that if it does well enough in that phase, that eventually there will be a paperback version. Uh, but if there's an online, there's an online version, and I believe it's possible yes. to uh, to purchase or download individual chapters. Yes, yes, that's a good thing about it. You don't have to purchase the whole thing. You can purchase the chapters you're interested in. Okay, including well. Introduction, including the editor's introduction, which kind of yeah. provides an overview of the field. Okay, well, thank you. And talk to you later. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.